Welcome to TribeCast. I am Forrest Walden, founder and CEO of Iron Tribe Fitness. And on this podcast, I am going to help you find your tribe and maximize your life. Welcome to another episode of TribeCast. So excited to have Dave Gray with us this morning. Uh, Dave has been a friend, a neighbor, a a fellow entrepreneur, someone who I have uh, benefited uh, with his leadership groups and a lot of things he's done to help develop other entrepreneurs. He's also a fellow Auburn alumni. Uh, We have children the same age. His wife designed our house and is currently doing a project for us right now. So Dave and I have a lot of connections, uh, but I'm most excited to have him on because he is a prolific entrepreneur. If you're in Birmingham, you know the name Dave Gray because uh, when it comes to uh, startups and especially in the technology space, he is an expert. And so Dave, excited to have you on this morning. Thanks. Yeah, it's funny to hear all the connections we have. We do have many. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's just talk about uh, who you are. For those who don't know you, give us an introduction and uh, introduce us to who Dave Gray is. Okay. I'm Dave Gray. Um, recently turned 49 years old. I'm married to Susan. We've been married for 24 years. We've got three kids. We have uh, 18-year-old boy-girl twins, Jack and Ellie, and then we have an eighth grader who's 14, Sam, um, which the three of them keep us busy, but we're about to be down to one child at home as our two seniors are getting ready to go off to college in the fall. And that's definitely something I want to talk about uh, later in the show, just that transition, kids going off to college. Yeah. I'm not, not terribly far behind you uh, on that route. Okay, so um, you have, are most well-known for your time at Daxco. Give us a little bit of background uh, before you got to Daxco and then what you did and accomplished at your time at Daxco. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I went to Auburn. I graduated in MIS, which back then was it was in the College of Business, but your first job out of college was typically a computer programmer. So I was a software engineer um, my first few years out of school, which I think actually has benefited me greatly now as I run tech companies. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, got recruited to a company in Chicago, did um, software development projects for a consulting firm, in Chicago and traveled all over the U.S. doing that. And then my wife and I decided that we wanted to move back down south, so we were going to move to Atlanta. And I applied with only um, Silicon Valley-based startups, although it was in Atlanta. Everybody seemed to be opening offices there, and this was in the height of the dot-com boom. So I went to work for a company called Calico Commerce um, in 1997. Had a really um, lot of growth Really interesting experience, did a bunch of stuff wrong, um, learned a lot from that, which really ended up kind of formulating my thought around how to run a business in the future. We went public, had a really successful first day IPO. Um, at the time, it was the sixth best in the history of the NASDAQ. Wow. And then within about four and a half months later, the NASDAQ crashed and the dot-com bubble burst and all that went away uh, pretty quickly. And then over the next year, year and a half, went through the painful process of laying people off and downsizing that business and stayed all the way through the end, uh, which was really a great learning experience. Then my wife and I, who'd had... Let me start. What yeah. was your role for that company? I was middle management. Okay. So I was running um, a professional services group out of Atlanta, kind of the eastern half of North America, did a lot in Canada and the U.S. Was part of a group. It was interesting because when the CEO, when the dot-com bubble burst and the NASDAQ was crashing and our stock was going with it and sales were drying up, he pulled together, he called it um, Team One, and it was about 15 of us who were kind of middle management and above that just said, "We're gonna if this thing's going to survive, it's going to be the 15 of us. That was a great learning experience to be in that room 
hearing what this CEO was thinking through mm-hmm. and how he was how he was trying to attack a really significant problem, which at the end of the day, we ended up not really pulling out of it. We got bought by a much larger company, um, but it was a great learning experience. I wouldn't have traded that for the world. And again, I was more observing than I was decision making at that point, right. which was which I again I think was very formative. So you got to see this rocket ship growth, this going right. going public, and then the whole world changing with the economy. And like, how do you manage all those? outside factors. Right. Yeah. So it was great. And then, so I exited that business to the point it got sold and decided, my wife and I said, hey, we want to raise our family back in Alabama. We were living in Atlanta at the time. And so our twins were just born and we just decided we were going to move to Birmingham and try to figure it out. And at that point, um, the Birmingham tech scene wasn't, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't as good as it is today. And so um, I got here and in the first year I was in the process of starting my own business um, a guy who actually, these two guys swam together at the YMCA every morning. And this the, one of them, I was trying to recruit to come work for me as my first hire. And he said he didn't want to do that because he had four kids. But he said, hey, there's a serial entrepreneur I'd inter- introduce you to. He'd be a good guy just to pick his brain as you kind of start your business. And so the three of us went to breakfast one day. And after I told him what I was planning on doing, he said, hey, I've got a better idea. I've invested in this company called Daxco and don't really know what to do with it. And um, I'd love to have you come and try to figure it out. And so um, after probably eight or nine more meals and coffee shops, we decided to, to partner on that. In January 1st of 2003, I joined that company when it was pretty small and hadn't really figured out what it was going to do yet and spent the next 15 and a half years growing that business. Uh, so interesting, you made that connection working out, yeah. swimming at the Y. Yeah. So we'll definitely talk about your workout routine. It's a great connection there. So in that 15 years from when you joined Daxco to when you exited just last year, talk about the growth, uh, really interested in your philosophy around culture and leadership, and especially with all the acquisitions and having to merge you know, different uh, sets of offices and cultures and keep your dynamic. Right. Yeah, when I got there, there were 16 people when I got there. We were doing, um, in total, less than a million dollars in revenue. We were losing about $1.6 million, which is not a good combination. And so Tom had invested a lot of his own money in that business, and um, they were burning through a fair amount of cash. And with 16 people, we were in four or five distinct different businesses, if you can imagine that. Mm. So we were anything but focused. And so one of the big learnings I actually had with that Silicon Valley-based company was we were really good at this niche market we were in, and we were one of the top two players in that space. And we kind of got, our eyes got too big, and we started going after all these other things. We were doing a bunch of acquisitions. And one of the tearful final messages to the company, I remember our CEO saying, was I should have defended the hill, and I should have stayed focused. And that really sunk Mm. in with me. So I left, and it it was powerful to hear him have to admit that. And so I, I entered my next venture thinking, okay, relentless focus is going to be a core management philosophy of mine. So the people who were at Daxco back in 03 probably got sick of hearing me say those two words, relentless focus, relentless focus. We were going to pick one thing and we were going to be good at it or we were going to die trying. So I've said that a million times. And that was kind of our philosophy. And ironically, one of the things we had just started doing was we were serving YMCA's with software, but we were doing a bunch of other stuff. We were serving university athletic departments. We had a group of IT consultants who were out setting up people's phone systems and computers. Um, and so within probably six to eight weeks, at the beginning of 03, decided pretty quickly there was an opportunity in that YMCA market and that it was an underserved market. They needed to make a transition to kind of web-based software 
Um, the competitive the competitive landscape was relatively weak, so it felt like a space we could win in. So it was all the classic kind of business stuff. It wasn't necessarily like, hey, we're getting into this because we're all fitness enthusiasts. That actually ended up coming later. We kind of that became part of our DNA, but really it started out because we felt like it was the best business opportunity, and there was an opportunity to grow a business, and and we needed to stop the cash bleed, and we need to focus the business. So we divested ourselves of everything else we were doing and put 100% of our effort pursuing this one little niche market. Okay, so let me back up. When you joined Axco, what, what was your role? I mean, technically, I guess my title was COO. The guy who invested title was technically CEO, but to his credit, he was not involved day-to-day at all. In fact, when the day I started, he's like, listen, I'm not going to be looking over your shoulder. This is your thing. I want you to create the culture. I want you to make these decisions. He really acted as like a chairman and a lead investor. Um, and we would joke our board meetings were at a restaurant called the Anchorage in downtown Homewood, and we would have we would have meetings there once a month. And he was basically my board of directors okay. and sole investor. Okay, so he gives you this business opportunity that's losing one point six million dollars a year, yeah. and says, "Figure it out." Right? Yeah, I'm so gonna, here, I'm gonna help you. here's a funny thing, and he, he's heard me actually say this publicly. Um, at the Anchorage, we were sitting in a booth in December of 2002. We we'd come to the agreement that I was going to join on January 1st of 03. And I said, okay, we've now agreed. I said, what do you want me to do and how are you going to measure the success? That was like the entirety of my question, almost verbatim. And his exact answer back was figure out what business we need to be in and make it make money. Hmm. And so I kind of, I, I knew the financials. I kind of shrugged my shoulders. Okay. And so immediately what I heard was relentless focus and disciplined growth. We need to figure out what we're going to do and we need to be, figure out a way to make it profitable. And so that just became kind of our mantra. And that literally was as detailed a conversation as we had. And then we were kind of off and running. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it reminds me very, very early days of never thirst. When we were starting that organization, we had all these ideas. We wanted to do agriculture. We wanted to build schools. And we knew clean water was a, a need. And our board, and Ricky, who's on our board, yeah. who was our guest a couple times ago, said, focus on one thing mm-hmm. and be the best in the world at it. So right. great advice. Okay, so yeah. you focused. You picked the YMCA niche. What, what happened from there? So we kept our head down and, and did that for years. And we really just stayed... I mean, I think to our team's credit, we stayed really, really focused on, like you said, on being the best of the world. There was nobody else in the world, which, you know, granted, it was a niche market, but there was nobody in the world better at serving YMCAs with mission-critical software solutions than we were. So we created a really robust software solution that really kind of, in our mind, changed a lot of the way in which our customers operated, made them much more efficient, and we were just really good at it. And we kept our head down and did that for years and honestly ignored a lot of people who would come up to us and go, man, when are you going to do something else? When are you going to – and they didn't fully probably comprehend, you know, the growth rate and the size of our company. And we were just satisfied. We would say, you know, what, we're, we like the niche we're in. We're going to keep doing it. And so we did that for the better part of um, really from 03 until 2000 and um, probably 12. And we started looking to do more acquisitions and then ex- really executed our first acquisition that was meaningful in 2014 and then did about eight in relatively quick succession that expanded our, our addressable market. Okay, so give us an idea of what size was that niche. How many Ys are there? Like Yeah, so there's about 900. At the time, there were about 900 YMCA associations in the country. And an association is a, usually a network of YMCAs in a given metro area. So like in Birmingham, there's 10 to 12 
sites that would all be considered a single customer. So there's hmm. 12 sites. So there's like 2,600 sites, Got it. but 900 decision makers. And then we also serve the Jewish Community Center space, the JCC space, which there's about 200 of those. So our, our entire market was only about 1,100 buying units. And we really didn't sell outside the U.S. There's YMCA's all over the place, but we really focused just on the U.S. So, And we now have you know, roughly 70% of that market. Yeah, I was going to ask, what was your yeah. penetration by the time you got to 12 and said, okay, maybe let's start to diversify, do some acquisitions? What type of penetration did you have in that niche? Yeah, it's funny. Back then, we probably had, um, we probably had like 40%, 35 40%. What has been really interesting, and there's a great book called Profit from the Core that talks about this. And when I read it, I'm like, gosh, this is just like us now. I'd like to think we were really strategic about it. We probably lucked into it a little bit, but when I read their description, what they describe in that book is that um, companies who really are are really good at a given niche or a given vertical market, the ones that they've seen in their research that are successful in the long term keep doing more and more in that market, and the ones that are less successful by most financial metrics and growth metrics are those that try to diversify too early. Mm. And what you find is when you have a really tight relationship with your customers that they want to buy more and more stuff from you. They want you to do more for them. And so like our single product that we had at the beginning, we've now expanded that. We have, depending on how you count it, we have three or four different software products that serve just that one market. We do a lot of stuff around payments. We do all these other things. At one point, we had a, an outsourced services organization that we were providing services for these YMCAs. So it was we were doing a ton of stuff because we became a trusted partner of theirs in the truest sense of the word. And so they depended on us. And it was a, and I you know, refer to it as a codependency. We're dependent on them for our livelihood. They're dependent on us to run an efficient business. And I think that's where you build a really strong relationship. So we stayed in that. Um, every year we'd say we're almost, we're going to run out. Like how big, you can't get 50% market share and then we get 50 or you can't get 60. And so every year we were thinking we need to diversify, but the deeper we got into it, the more success we were finding. And so um, we continue to grow in that market. It's, it's crazy. We would have, in 03 when we made this decision, we probably thought we could do that for two or three years, and then the growth would kind of plateau. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2019, and we're still seeing great growth. And so what type of penetration is there today? I think it's around 70%, okay. roughly. And again, it depends on how you count it because we have multiple products. So we have a lot of customers that are buying one or more of our products. And so how you count you know, customer penetration is a little bit different than the old days when we only had one product. But I would say we probably are serving roughly 70% of that market with one or more of our products. Uh, one of my favorite marketing mentors says there's riches and niches. Yeah. And you found yeah. your niche and you went deep. Yeah. So great story. All right. So from 2012, when you started to think, let's uh, diversify, let's do some acquisitions, talk about the growth path from there that wasn't YMCA dependent. Yeah. Well, one one important thing, too, in, in 08, we raised outside capital for the first time. And that really kind of changed. The, the first um, outside capital we raised, it was partially to get um, liquidity for Tom, who was our original angel investor who I mentioned before, and it was partially to do acquisitions. We did one acquisition actually um, in 2009, so right after that investment, and it failed. It was our biggest failure from an ac- acquisition perspective. We ended up shutting that business down later, um, and it was a pretty far off departure from what we had been doing. We were going after the professional and trade association market. There's some similarities in that there's lots of membership and programs and things you sign up for. But then the um, Lehman Brothers collapsed right before we bought that company. Mm. The financial markets were crashing. Nobody was paying for professional trade association membership. So it was bad timing um, when we bought that company. 
And so we actually ended up shuttering that um, probably 18 months after we acquired it. So that would be considered our biggest failure. Then we flipped um, to a new private equity group in 2014, the beginning of 14, and we did two meaningful acquisitions. One was actually our biggest competitor in the YMCA space. And so that really um, gave us the leadership position there. And then the second one answered the big question a lot of investors had was, well, these guys are really powerful in this niche, but their total addressable market's too small. So we bought a company in Houston that opened us up into um, for-profit health clubs, university rec centers, um, hospital-based wellness, and really opened it up. We, when we bought them, they had about 500 customers, and it just op- it's an enormous market. And so as a result of that, we started quickly getting phone calls from other private equity investors who saw that we answered kind of the one remaining question, our growth rate, our profitability, all that stuff was good. We just didn't have a big enough addressable market. And with those two acquisitions, it really kind of answered that question. And so we then did another um, private equity transaction in the uh, in f- in um, 16, at the end of 2016. And then since then, we've done um, a handful more acquisitions, which one of the bigger ones was in Denver, we bought a company that serves health clubs similar to Iron Tribe that serves more what we would consider the studio market. So serving things like yoga studios, CrossFit gyms, um, personal training gyms, martial arts. And we have roughly 7,000 studios around the world that use our wow. software to run their to run their membership. Yes, yeah, so you're in the b- boutique micro gym space, right. which is my space. Yeah, and, and so one of the things I think that's unique about that when we got that acquisition done is we really are the only software provider at least in the U.S., we're the only software provider. If you own or run a health club and you come to us and say, do you have software for us? Our answer is yes. We're the only ones who can say that. So if you're running a campus rec center, you're running a YMCA, you're running a hospital-based wellness, you're running a Iron Tribe, you're running a, um, a yoga studio, you're running a multi-chain, large, private, high-end health club, we can we have a software solution. It's not all the same software. We have now like kind of three or four different platforms, but we have an answer to that. So we really feel like we're uniquely positioned to serve across the entire market, holistically serve all of those customers. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So help me understand from when you started uh, to when you exited, and we'll talk about that in a minute, what happened to um, the number of headcount, employees, the growth, and and you're most well-known for, like I said, culture and leadership. So just talk about that transition and how you were able to develop uh, in-house your own talent. Yeah. So when we joined, I mentioned there were 16 people there. Um, about half of those were actually doing this IT outsourcing stuff, and we spun that out. So really in the software side of the business, focused on the YMCA's, there was only really six or seven or maybe eight of us that were focused on that. So it kind of that was truly the starting point. And then when I exited um, June 30th, we had roughly 350 or so people spread across offices in five states. And we went from – we had um, 10 launched – YMCA customers at the end of 2002, I think 13 total had signed contracts. So January 1st of 03, we had 13 contracted um, customers. And right now, we probably have roughly 11,000. So um, the customer count growth has really gone up quite a bit. And so when you talk about the culture part of it, too, there to me, culture is multifaceted and multilayered. And one of the big things about culture is you know, I think a management philosophy is part of that. So I mentioned before, relentless focus and disciplined growth were big management philosophies. I'm a big believer that culture is the long-term sustainable competitive advantage. And so really from day one, 
I had an idea of what I wanted the culture to be. Now, there were already a ha- small handful of people there, so I didn't come in on day one and list out the 42 things I wanted to do. I started with small things. One was preaching relentless focus. We were dabbling in a bunch of stuff, so we needed to change that mindset. Um, and then over time, we would implement things that were kind of fundamental. And then other things you end up getting known for. So like locally, you know, we used to give tours of our office space all the time because we had an interesting office space and people were, wanted to see how it operated and what it looked like. And so people can confuse culture a little bit with what I would say is, you know, free food and flip-flops and scooters, mm-hmm. which we had all of that. And that was part of the culture, but that's not the fundamental stuff. The fundamental stuff is, you know, trying to have as low bureaucracy as possible. How do you um, demonstrate transparency and candor? You know, how do you keep a team focused? How, do, how does disciplined growth, even after you're successful and you're making money, how, do you, how is that still kind of a core tenant of the way you lead the company? And so, you know, we would try to be relatively thrifty. When you would see our office space, it felt really nice. And we had, you know, refrigerators full of all kinds of, you know, 17 different flavors of water and stuff. And that feels a little bit over the top. But there were other things we did to control costs to make sure we'd be able to have those types of things. So we, we maintained that discipline even after we were successful. And so, in really kind of the genesis of, of the culture itself, I mean, I think in general, I think if you read people who study this stuff, it really takes on the personality typically of the founder. So, you know, Iron Tribe's culture is a result of the way you think and behave, and Daxco's culture was a result of the way I thought and behaved. The same way, if you look at two companies I, I have um, high opinion of is Chick-fil-A and Southwest Airlines. And you look at their two founders, they could not be different. In Chick-fil-A's case, it was a very devout Christian who was, you know, closed on Sundays and had um, marriage retreats and did a lot with, based on his Christian faith. And on the Southwest side, you had this guy who was all about fun. He drove a Harley, he smoked, he drank whiskey, and he was irreverent. And But in both cases, those people loved their customers and they loved their employees. And so it, the personalities can be different and you can get there different ways. But generally speaking, the culture is going to take on that personality of whoever founded that company or who's leading that company. And so um, a lot of what we did was a result of stuff I experienced as an employee. There were things I really liked when I was an employee, and there were things I hated when I was an employee. In fact, I didn't like the word employee, so that was like a dirty word in our company. We would call it everybody team members because I felt like that just set a different tone. And so a lot of what I was doing was just stuff. It was remembering the things and making mental notes of the things where I, when, when I felt empowered, what was my boss doing that made me feel empowered? Mm-hmm. When I felt like I was a cog in the wheel, what was the negative thing that my boss was doing to me that made me feel that way and trying to do the opposite of that. And so that was really kind of how we developed that over time. And it evolves. You know, it, it changes over time when you go from 10 people where you can you know everybody's pet's name to 300 people and you have a hard time remembering their first name. It changes a little bit and those kinds of things, but it, the general fundamental things need to stay consistent. Yeah, that's a great uh, point on the names thing. I remember, uh, Mindy, there was a point where she, if she walked into the gym and there was a new coach coaching that she hadn't met, like she would get mad at me. Like, how is there a new employee yeah. that I haven't met? I'm like, babe, that's like we're growing, we're scaling. Right. Like, if if the, the benchmark is you've got to meet everybody, like we're not going to yeah. be able to keep yeah. up with that. So yeah, I remember that. Well, it was uh, funny too because I'm not always great at remembering my kids' friends' names or our neighbors' names, and my wife and kids will kind of joke with me about that. And I say, listen, I'm trying to remember 350 people at the office. I've only got so much room in my brain. I've I've made the decision I'm going to prioritize them over some 
you know, somebody who lives seven houses down who I don't really know. And so that it, it is a challenge, though. I'm glad to hear you say that because I struggle with <laughs> yeah, the exact yeah. same thing. I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate. Yeah. Uh, so also, I would think not only your experience of what you liked as an employee and how you were going to translate over, but you sitting through that time with uh, the tech bubble yeah, and then kind of reliving that with the OA disaster, I'm sure right. a lot of those lessons, like, okay, I saw how this CEO responded and acted. Now I have the opportunity to do, you know, a very similar situation. How do I respond? Right. Were some of those good, good lessons that you got to apply? Yeah. I mean, I think the focus one is the biggest one probably, but I, I can remember when Lehman Brothers collapsed and our Jonathan Sides, our CFO at the time, he and I working through a doomsday scenario and creating financial models that what happens if a bunch of our customers go out of business or people stop buying Fortunately, that did not happen to us, but we had a doomsday model. We were prepared to act on that. Um, and it was a good lesson because we have, we have always kind of had a lot of young people working for us. And because these young people have friends that are young and are working in big companies where they were doing lots of layoffs in 2009, they were seeing their friends lose their jobs. And so it was an easy message. It's like, listen, we're, we are going to buckle down and make sure that we don't have to go through that. Mm. But it's going to require us to be extra disciplined. It's going to require us to be extra focused. And it's going to require us to be you know, stingy on our spending. We may not hire that person we want to hire because what we don't want to do is overhire and then have to downsize later as a result because we don't know how bad this economy is going to get. And then you know, in 2009, it felt like it was going to get pretty bad, and it did. And so I think that was an easier message to convey to people, and we were trying to just be transparent about it. It's like, we're, we're trying to protect the people we have here, and we need to be really careful during a time like this. And, uh, you know, people reacted well to that, I think. And fortunate uh, that... I think the in general the fitness space was pretty recession proof. I was, I mean, a lot of people. We actually saw people committing to that because right. every other part of their world was kind of burning. They're yeah. like, at least I can focus on my body. So we uh, we weathered it fairly well. Okay, so we could talk about your time at Daxco forever, but essentially you went from thirteen team members to eleven thousand from customers, eight, yeah, uh, yeah, customers, and then yeah. eight team members to three hundred and fifty in five states. So like massive growth. You've now exited. What are you doing now? Catch us up on what your world looks like today. Yeah, so um, pretty quickly after in July when I was thinking through what I wanted to do next, I pretty quickly came to the conclusion I wanted to run a software business again. Um, I actually feel like God's put me on earth to, to lead businesses, so I feel like that's kind of my calling. I'm not all that good at much else, so I feel <laughs> like that's what my calling is. And so um, I pretty quickly came to that conclusion that's what I wanted to do. And then I started having conversations with people, what does that look like? I can sit in my garage and try to come up with an idea. I had some people reach out to me, particularly in the private equity world, who were inviting me to, to come lead a company or sit on a board of a company. Um, I had some conversations with you know companies already in existence to do that. Um, then I got a, an idea that I wanted to, um, I want to have an impact on Birmingham. I want to create high-quality jobs here. My wife and I, you know, 17 years ago, made the decision we were going to raise our family here. And I love this city, and so I'd like to play an active role in us living up to our potential. And so I decided, okay, well, how do I do that here? If I sit in a garage and try to come up with an idea, that just takes a while. I've been through that before to get traction and momentum, and there's a high failure rate. I said, well, the other thing I've spent a lot of my time doing is acquisitions. And I thought, so I could put together an investment group, and I can go out and buy companies, um, in particular, I could buy companies and, and when it makes sense, could move them here or parts of those businesses here. And so I started having conversations with people. And along those conversations, I, I met um, David Walker, who's the CEO of a company here in Birmingham called EBSCO, which is a large $2.8 billion revenue business. It's largely owned by a single family. 
that is celebrating their 75th anniversary of that company um, this year. So, so they checked a lot of boxes for me. They were they want to do big things in Birmingham. They're very long term focused, and they're great people. And so, as we had a kind of an introductory conversation just to get to know each other, and a few days later, I sent them what I was planning on doing and said, you know, I think you guys could potentially be my financial backers on this and over the next few weeks kind of worked out an arrangement on what that would look like. So I've got a, a small office downtown. We're looking at doing a project downtown to build what will be the headquarters of this company that's now called BSO Collective. And BSO is, it's B-I and S-O, which is the first two letters in Birmingham software. So the idea is that I'm going to create a holding company that will own multiple kind of unaffiliated software businesses that all have the similar business model but are in different industries and that we will run that out of Birmingham. And again, when it makes sense, we would move businesses here if, if it was the right thing to do. But we would also assume we'll be owning businesses outside the Birmingham area as well. We're kind of focusing on the U.S. Um, and so I'm out pursuing acquisitions right now. And then along with that in January, I also started on my primary volunteer role. I'm on a few boards, but my primary one right now is I'm the chairman of um, the Community Foundation of Birmingham, which, um, like my professional side, is about you know what I'm trying to help create high quality jobs and try to help us live up to our potential. That's what the community foundation is all about is transformational change in our city. And so I feel like the two, my volunteer work and my um, professional work are in good alignment as well. So. Sounds exciting. Yeah. And when you exit Daxco, like I was one of the first, like I couldn't wait to see what you did next. Yeah. I knew you would have tons of options. And so it's really cool uh, what you're doing now. Funny story about EBSCO. Uh, I used to train Elton B. Stevens. He oh, really? come in my studio with his cane uh, and his girlfriend, Caroline Ireland, who was also a big name in Birmingham, so I could tell you some funny stories about Elton. But, yeah, I mean, what a uh, just amazing part of the Birmingham story EBSCO has been. So oh, now yeah. for you to align with them and be focused on the uh, software and startup community here in Birmingham, really admire that. Uh, but I, I want to ask you one other thing on the professional side. So what has it been like to go from these 350 team members, three-story office building here in Birmingham to starting over? I don't know what your team looks like now, your office. Is it just you? Do you have a team? Like, what has that transi- transition been like for you? Yeah, it is just me. And it's been interesting because um, people ask me, what's the difference? I mean, the difference is it's a lot less complex because mm-hmm. when you're running a business that has 350 people and 11,000 customers, just a ton of complexity. And so right now, it's been, in a lot of ways, it's been really fun and refreshing because I'm starting back at the beginning and thinking about how do I frame what I'm doing? How do I define what I'm doing? How do I communicate that to people? How is the story going to resonate with an entrepreneur or an owner of a business that I'm trying to buy? So all of that has been really um, fun and interesting. And it's kind of, you know, exercising old muscles that I haven't had the chance to exercise in a while. So that's been a lot of fun. But to be honest with you, too, there's it's a little bit of an ego thing when you go and, you know, Birmingham's a relatively kind of smallish, mid-sized city, and people knew who Daxco was, and I was the CEO of a company that had a relatively high profile. You were Daxco Dave. I was Daxco Dave. It was my, <laughs> literally my teenage friend, my teenage kids, um, their friends all referred to me as Daxco Dave. That was all my social media handles and stuff, and that becomes part of your identity. Um, in, in some ways, that's a very negative thing, and so it's. I think it's been good, and it's probably God teaching me some humility that you know, you can't be tied up in that. That can't be your identity. Your identity cannot be work. I can't be thinking of myself only as Dax Good Dave. It's bigger than that. And so this, it's actually been a good thing for me to step back. And, and then, and I've gotten very comfortable with it. I'm not sure everybody else always is because I don't think people really understand what I'm doing necessarily. Um, and so when I explain it to somebody, they're like, 
so like, is he working? I don't quite, <laughs> I don't quite understand if he has a job. And so I'm busy and I'm doing a lot of stuff and I have a high confidence level that this is going to turn out successful. And I'm actually looking at this as what I'm doing over the next 20 years. I'm 49 years old. Um, I try to stay in good shape because I actually think that I, I'm going to work for a long time. I don't have aspirations to retire. Um, and so this is, I'm looking at this as a 20 year play um, assuming that you know EBSCO will be patient, that patient or whoever you know, whoever my partner is long term, but 20 years is the way I'm looking at it. And when you have conversations with people, when you had been running a bigger company and they're like, well, why haven't you bought anything yet, or why don't you have 500 people working for you yet? I've gotten really comfortable with that. That it's it's going to take time and it's going to require patience. Because what I want to do is I want to buy the right companies. Mm-hmm. I want to build the right healthy company, and I feel like I found the right partner, which is awesome. But it just takes time. And so people who have done what I'm doing in other cities and have funded it, you know, the, the things that I've heard that people will counsel you is it's a two-year kind of trek to oftentimes to find your first company. Now, my hope is I do it faster than that, but that's going to require me to stay focused on one thing for two years. And I'm willing to do that because I'm looking at this as a very long-term play. I'm not looking for a quick flip. It reminds me in the franchise space, I've never heard a franchisor speak, whether it was Hardee's or, I mean, it doesn't matter. Every brand I've ever heard, they say it's all about selling to the right franchisees. Right. Right. Yeah. You can sell a bunch and, you know, just grow. And then you look up and you're like, I, I don't even, these brand partners aren't yeah. the right partners. Yeah. So very similar. You want to acquire. And that, that's just the, the wisdom of experience, right? And having lived through uh, the ups and downs and like, if you're going to build this thing right on your terms, you're going to start with the right companies from the start. Right. Even if it's slower. Yeah. Okay. So we, again, we could talk about business forever. Uh, but clearly, you're an accomplished entrepreneur, uh, know what you're doing, very focused on where you're going forward, like you said, for the next 20 years. Uh, but I know you've listened to multiple episodes of this show, and so you know what we really want to talk about is Dave as a holistic person, body being balanced in business. You're not just Axco Dave. You're not just the business entrepreneur. There's this other side of you that fuels what you do as an entrepreneur. So I want to start... Uh, with your, in the area of balance, uh, you mentioned married for 24 years, uh, three kids. Uh, one thing from the outside looking in, I've always respected about you. I know that you're very intentional about walking your kids to school in the morning when they were going to yeah. the school in your neighborhood. Um, and uh, I think Friday morning breakfast as a ritual uh, before school. So talk about some of those things you put into place pretty early to make sure you didn't get out of balance. Yeah, one thing I'll, I'll comment on, too, because you mentioned I listened to some of your podcasts. And, and when I listen to them, I'm like, gosh, these guys have their act together. Like, they've figured it out. They had some, there's some really good practical stuff in this podcast. And when I think about myself, I feel like I'm a work in progress. I'm a 49-year-old work in progress. And so I'm not the dad I want to be yet. I'm not the husband I want to be yet. I'm not the Christian I want to be yet. I'm not the business leader I want to be yet. I'm not as good at fitness and nutrition as I'd like to be. So I, And I'm not saying that I can false humility. I've got a ton of work to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the, the things, and I used to talk about this relatively publicly, is that even going back and using Daxco as an example, locally, it feels like everything's going great. And I would have friends walk up to me at a coffee shop and go, hey, you guys still killing it at Daxco. And some days you feel like you're getting killed. You're not doing the killing. And out from the outside world, it looks like it's a rocket ship that's flying up into the right all the time. And the reality is it oftentimes feels more like a roller coaster mm. where there's lots of twists and turns and ups and downs. And then, you know, in some days it feels probably more like a Tough mutter race where there's insurmountable obstacles and there's fires and electric wires. So, I mean, it's, 
I think that's the challenge. A lot of people will see other people being successful and think it's like, I'm not going to ever get there or that's not the way it feels for me. And the same, I think, is true in family life. Like, I appreciate what you said about my kids. I've been blessed with having a great wife and great kids, but it hasn't always been smooth and I've screwed up a ton of stuff. But having said that, there are things I try to do that are deliberate and I sometimes get it right. And I hope, you know, and I've got two that are about to leave. So I hope their 18-year entire experience, there's more positives than negatives, but I've certainly screwed up tons of stuff along the way. Man, I can totally relate to what you're talking about in some of these episodes. And I've got some future episodes where I'm going to go even further into my failures. Uh, but there's been times even when people have invited me to speak, and I feel like I can't even get up there. Like, yeah, I'm so beat yeah. up right now, and they want me to go and talk about how I'm killing it. So I can completely relate. But let's talk about some of the things that you feel like you did get right. Yeah. Um, what, especially when it comes to your kids, like, so what are some things that you put into place to make sure they were getting some undivided attention from dad? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's some little quirky things I would do that were deliberate. So. Our kids um, went to Shades Cahaba here locally, um, so we share that in common. And there's a little tunnel that goes under the highway, and we would I would walk for 10 years straight. I had at least one child in that elementary school, and I would walk that last like 200 yards with my kids. Every, every day, basically every day I was in town, I would do that. I would kind of commit to that time. And I'll never forget, there was one day, it was a young teacher, probably in her 20s, was standing there. It's, this is like a 1950s scene. It's awesome. They hold the doors for the kids, and the, there's other little kids that open the doors of the cars. It's a really neat kind of experience. And I would stand at the end of the tunnel, and my kids, would enter as they were entering the door to the school, they would turn around and wave at me, and I would wave back to them. And one teacher had seen this happen day after day for, you know, for the entire school year, and she said, man, your kids are never going to forget that. And I, I kind of laughed back at her and said, I, I bet you they will, but I'll never forget it. <laughs> so part of that was selfish is that, like, the opportunity to know that, you know, they're going to graduate from elementary school in the fifth grade and you're only going to have so many years you can do that. And then, like, things change when they go to middle school and high school and they're driving themselves or in carpools. And so that was one thing that it was just like every – and I had some of the more interesting conversations. My youngest, Sam – um, that just when it was just the two of us in the car, even though we were only in the car and then that little short walk in that five to seven to 12 minutes, whatever it would take on a given day, we would have really interesting conversations. And it was like the hustle of getting out the door and getting your lunch ready and eating breakfast and all that was done. And you had a little bit of quiet. So those ended up being some of the more valuable kind of bonding times. Um, the, you know, we did Friday morning breakfasts. We would go to different places on Friday mornings before school. And that became kind of a regular ritual. Now, was that with all three, or did you do them individually? We would do those, yeah, all three once they were in school. But then, you know, our older ones kind of graduated out of elementary school, and so it was oftentimes originally just the twins, and then later just Sam. There was a little bit of overlap for a year or two where we were doing it all together. Um, And then even on Saturday mornings, partially to give my wife a break, we would oftentimes do the same thing and walk to a neighborhood restaurant on a Saturday morning, just the four of us, and um, it would give my wife a chance to breathe a little bit um, so that we would do things like that. But it was, yeah. And again, I'm not sure how much my kids will remember that. Um, I certainly remember it. Um, I'm it pretty important. positive they'll remember <laughs> yeah. and have fond memories of that. Um, also, I know you do special like 12-year-old and 16-year-old trips. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I actually went to a men's conference one day. It was a Christian men's conference. And I unfortunately don't remember who told me this. It was a, it was a guy who was speaking on lessons. It was like his top 10 lessons learned from raising his kids. And I, if I remember correctly, he had all grown kids out of college. They were two boys and two girls. 
And the one thing I remember he did, I think his was like 13 and 15. And so we've actually done ours at 10 and 15. Okay. And so what we do is when the child turns 10 sometime that year, they go on a one-on-one trip out of town with the opposite gender parent. So since we had boy-girl twins, that year my wife took my son and I took my daughter. And so as an example, I took my daughter to um, Cape Cod. We happen to have a friend that has a house up there, so it was a free place to stay. So it wasn't extravagant necessarily, but it was just the two of us for three or four days. It was awesome. And um, and then when my son turned, when that twin turned um, 15, it was time for me to take them. So on the 15th, the year of their 15th birthday, you do the same gender pair with the idea that they're kind of entering adulthood mm-hmm. or closer to adulthood and you can have some opportunity to bond. And so that was a really interesting one because we both decided, my son and I decided we want to do something outdoorsy. So we went to Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado and we picked deliberately, I talked to a park ranger on the phone and picked a trail that would be the least occupied. And so we only saw a couple other humans while we were out there for the three days and we hiked. And then one of the things you read on the plaque right before you start is that there are mountain lions and bears in the area. And they say the best thing to keep them away is to talk loudly a lot. And so for literally for three days, my son and I talked about everything. And when we got back, my wife said, what'd you guys talk about? I said, literally everything. Cause you just, we were having to come up with conversations partially because we didn't want to get eaten by a mountain lion. <laughs> and uh, But in all seriousness, we had, I mean, we had discussions from like culture and leadership of my company to what he wants to do when he goes to college, to girls, to faith. I mean, it was like all kind of, it was just us in the woods literally for three days. It was Man, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when are you going to so get I that? So I highly recommend, yeah, I highly recommend that habit of doing that. And so I've got, so I'm looking forward to it because my son, my youngest son turns 15 um, very shortly in May. And so sometime over the next 12 months, the two of us will plan a trip and go somewhere, just the two of us. So, really cool. Yeah. I don't know if you listened to the episode of The Gathering with my men's group, but uh, yeah. Olin, one of the guys, talked about his ritual when his boys turned 13 to let them know they've become a man. And so it sounds very similar. Yeah. So that's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Um, what about you and Susan? I mean, 24 years, that alone is an accomplishment this day and age. Yeah. I know you guys like to travel and do stuff. Uh, do y'all do a weekly date night? Like, what do you do to make sure you're investing in your marriage? Yeah, um, we're not as systematic as doing a weekly date night. Um, and in fact, nights have been hard for us in general of raising kids. And our kids are pretty active, do a lot of different things. And so, you know, we probably do more lunch dates than we do um, evening dates. And so we're not as regular or systematic about that. The one thing I think we've been good at, and this was partially before we had kids, we observed the way other people interact with their kids, where the kids became the center of the universe. I actually think it's really important in parenting that the kids understand the most important relationship in that family is between the husband and the wife, not necessarily between the parents and the kids and their soccer coach. And so we're, we want to make sure we're demonstrating that to them. And so one of the things we decided before we ever had kids, we're like, when we have kids, we're going to take a trip, just the two of us, every year without, without um, skipping. And so for the last 18 years, we've taken at least one. It's usually multiple, but we'll go away. And I think... You know, the weekly stuff and doing lunches and things together are good, but what I've found, I hope what my wife would say, what she's found is the best connection is when we just get away and it's just the two of us. And oftentimes it's just the two of us sitting silently next to each other, staring at waves crashing on the beach. It's nothing, you know, it's not necessarily anything really deep, but it's just time away, time to, to focus on each other a little bit. And so that's been really, 
I think, important for us. And I encourage newlyweds that that's a habit they need to get into because I think it's easy to fall into the habit of not doing that. And then 20 years later, my fear is 20 years later, we'd be staring back at each other going, who are you? And we don't spend you know, alone time together anymore. So the same way we do that with our kids, we want to make sure we're doing it every year with each other. Completely agree. You need that time when you're not mom and you're not dad. Right. right? Yeah, you're, you're dating. Your husband, your husband and wife. And wife and right. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times Mindy and I have done something like that. In fact, next weekend we're going to 38 to the beach to do that very thing. But it's like, oh, yeah, I really like you. Like, yeah. I remember yeah. why I married yeah, you exactly. because you're actually pretty cool. But yeah. in the hustle and bustle of life, you can lose that. So right. awesome. All right. So I want to shift to body. Yep. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that where, uh, A, you met your partner at Daxco uh, in a workout scenario. And then, B, you also talked about you stay in really good shape because you want to do this as a long play. You're not looking to ret- retire. You want to be healthy and vibrant. So Talk to me about, and I also know you've been a dedicated Iron Tribe member for years, and so you're an early morning guy. Just talk about your emphasis on fitness and how that's enabled you to be the entrepreneur that you are. Yeah, so, yeah, I've learned and gotten better at this over time as well, Um, and I still have room to improve. I'd still like to get better at my workouts. I'd like to eat better. Um, But they are clearly tied together. So my fitness level and my energy, my nutrition, and my weight, and all of that stuff has had an impact on the type of leader and father and husband I am. Because um, there's a, there was a really interesting tweet several years ago by Randy Zuckerberg, who's Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook's younger sister, and she called it the entrepreneur's dilemma. And she said there's five things. There's family, fitness, sleep, work, and friends. Pick three if you're an entrepreneur. Hmm. And I heard that or saw that tweet And it was convicting because I thought, man, I'm not sure I even picked three. So I feel like I've done a pretty good job. I would do things to commit to family time. I would, and I would actually exercise pretty regularly. And I was really probably obsessively focused on my business, but I was ignoring, like I wasn't building strong friendships. I wasn't dedicating time and being explicit to it. And I was sleeping horribly. Mm. I was sleeping like, you know, four or five hours a night. And so I learned that lesson probably 10 years into my time at Daxco and I sleep more now, which increases my fitness level. It makes me, I make better food decisions as a result. And then I'm less irritable and grumpy, which makes me a better dad and husband. Hopefully it makes me a, probably a better person to work with. And so um, I think all of that stuff is tied together. And then before I, st- I started Iron Tribe, I think around 2011. So I've been doing it for eight years or so. And before I did that, I was, I was basically a runner. And so I would run, I've done a bunch of marathons and I, I remember joking with a friend of mine that I was training for my last marathon with. And I said, you know, I feel like we're in pretty good shape, but all I can do is run in a straight line. I would not want to have to like wrestle somebody right now or do a bunch of push-ups, And that's actually kind of what prompted me to start Iron Tribe was I needed more holistic fitness. But in both cases, I think whether it's a really hard workout at Iron Tribe or whether it's running a marathon, there's also, it gives you a confidence level that I can achieve really difficult things. Mm-hmm. And so whether that confidence is spoken or not, I think it helps you from an energy level, from a confidence level, from an optimism perspective. And so I think they're closely tied and how you perform on your business side is how you, you know, how you perform on the fitness and nutrition side. So give us an idea of what that looks like for you. You said you sleep more now. Is that like six hours a night, seven hours a night? What time do you get up? I know you have a, just kind of walk us through your, I know you're early yeah. morning guy. What does that morning routine look like for you? So about four years ago, I went to a CEO program at Stanford, and there was a guy named Baba Shiv. If you Google him, you can read or see videos about him. And he convinced me with data, convinced me and the 66 other guys who were in the room, 
that we're not superhuman because we all think we are and we can perform. Like I, I used to, sadly, and this is embarrassing to say, but I would like my wife would say, "Oh, Dave only sleeps like four hours a night," and I would take some pride in that. It's because, it, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm different than all the rest of you guys. And the reality was, I was cheating myself. I was mm-hmm. cheating my family, my job, my fitness, all that stuff. And so he proved it to me with data. And I'm listening to him go through all this research that proves that you can't operate um, at the same level with less than seven hours. So literally on that day, I said, I'm going to start sleeping seven hours. And so now I set my alarm. And some people argue you probably need more than that, but seven was a big jump. And so now I set the alarm basically seven hours. from Whatever time I go to bed, I'm going to set my alarm for seven hours later. Now, I really like my morning time, so it, it, what it taught me to do is go to bed earlier. So now I go to bed a lot earlier, but I still get up pretty early. So for the last 16 years... I don't know what my average wake-up time is, but it certainly six days a week has begun with the number four. It's somewhere. It used to be four o'clock, and I probably like this morning. I got up at four twenty because I went to bed at nine twenty, mm. and so it's I've gotten much more religious about that. Is get my seven hours, and I can tell a massive difference. It's it's a huge difference. So then, my normal morning routine is whether I get up, I probably. Now get up around, you know, between 4.15 and 4.45, just depends on the day. And um, I get up, my first thing I do is I make a six-ounce cup of coffee. That's my, I start with a black cup of coffee. That may be an age thing. I just need a little jolt to get me going. And then I sit down in my home office and I do some type of spiritual reading, whether I'm reading out of the Bible or a book that I'm going through. And I'll do that. And it's kind of my quiet time. And the house is silent, obviously. And then... Then I go work out. I either do the 515 Iron Tribe class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or like on today, it's a Tuesday, I, I ran. So I run on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and then I try to get in either a Saturday or Sunday run. Um, and then after I get through with my workout or my run, I then go to a local coffee shop, in which I usually will spend about an hour there. And usually then I shift to try to do business reading, where it'll be some book I'm going through and um, a topic that's of interest to me. And then I go home, and I get home around 7 in the morning, and um, that's when kind of all my kids have surfaced and made it downstairs, and it's like you get 20 or 30 minutes with them of the hustle and bustle of getting out the door, mm-hmm. but it allows me to see them every morning, and then when they're all out, then I shower and I go to work, and so that's pretty pretty consistently, that's what my mornings look like. I, I, like I never, I've just never had a problem oversleeping. When my alarm goes off, I get out of bed and I just go do something. I'm... I've never overslept. That's like the one thing I think I've been good at is I don't oversleep. So I get up. is your typical start time at the office like 8.39? Yeah, usually um, I try to protect my mornings not to have a bunch of coffee meetings and stuff in the mornings, which a lot of people like to do. Like, let's grab a cup of coffee. So I try to avoid that. So, yeah, I would say roughly, I mean, it depends. Where I'm, I'm working downtown now. My commute used to be a little bit shorter, so I'd probably be at my desk at like 8.05 or 8.10, and now it's probably closer to 8.30, assuming I don't have a meeting somewhere else. Yeah. So it's um, around that time. Well, that is eerily similar to the morning routine podcast I did recently about mine and what I preach. So it's pretty cool. I mean, all truth is universal, right? So, I mean, like those are the things you got to be doing in the morning. You got to be connecting spiritually. You got to be connecting with your body. You got to be connecting with your family so that when you show up at work, you can totally focus and you're in power. Right. And I'll tell you, too, that that part about showing up at work, what I have found in staying consistent on that is that, and you mentioned the word balance, I feel like I'm in balance when I've done those things and I'm ready to go. Then, like, kind of no matter what my day is going to look like, I've accomplished, I feel like I've already now accomplished things. So I've accomplished, you know, time with God. I've accomplished a hard workout. I've accomplished quiet time where I'm studying something that's going to help my business and drinking a good cup of coffee. I've accomplished, you know, seeing my kids in the morning before they go to school 
And then I feel like I, that's a lot to get done by eight o'clock. And then I feel like whatever happens the rest of the day is kind of just upside. And so totally. if I don't do those things, particularly if I don't do it, like I don't get like overly obsessed about it. If I skip a day, it's not a big deal. If I skip two or three days, it starts to really bother me. And I feel like I'm out of balance and out of sync. Yeah, it'd be interesting to talk about how you're able to maintain that on the road. But I want to transition, instead of talking about that, I want to transition finally into being, and you've mentioned it throughout this podcast, you've said, you know, I feel like God created me to create businesses. I feel the same way. You talk about connecting with Him first thing in the morning. So talk to me about your Christian faith and how that really um, is an impact on everything, every role, every domain of your life. Yeah, yeah. so I don't have like a really dramatic story around that. I was I was born and raised in a pretty devout Christian household, so I don't remember a time where I didn't believe in God or that I didn't believe that Christ was my Savior. That was always just kind of, it was how I was raised. I didn't have some, you know, big epiphany that when I was 25 or so, um, which, you know, I think is a good thing. I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do it. It's just that's what my story is. So I feel like I've always had, I've certainly have had ebbs and flows you know, was I being as obedient when I was in college? No, I, you know, I was selfish and doing stuff I probably shouldn't have been doing. And it was the first time away from home and trying to figure out how I was going to, you know, spend my time and balance my time. And so there's been lots of ebbs and flows. And certainly this has been a bit when I mentioned that I'm not perfect. Um, this is some area that I continue to realize how far away I am from where I want to be, the more and more I get into it. But I feel like it has definitely been a journey and a path that I'm on. Um, I do believe earlier in my career, I used to think like probably like a lot of 25 year olds, I would think about, you know, the idea of retiring when I'm 50. And I used to literally say this to friends of mine, I'm like, God didn't put me on this earth to work. And now you fast forward, you know, 25 years later. And now I actually, I believe God put me on this earth to work. I don't believe, I don't believe it's biblical to have a traditional retirement where you just, you know, take it to the golf course and hang out on the beach. I think whether it's a real job or whether it's serving other people, I think we are put here to do something productive. And so, um, and in my case, unless I get a sign that it's supposed to be something different, I think I'm, I'm put here and I think God's given me some talents to do some things around leadership and business. And it's what I, I like to do. It's what I enjoy doing. I'm trying to spend time with younger people who are early in their career to share some of this like leadership principles and culture issues with the hope that it spreads across other companies. I did one of those this morning at 630 with a group of kind of mid-level leaders. So I really enjoy that part of it. So it's not only building the business, I do enjoy the teaching part of it as well. And um, so that's just, it's a, it's, it's the foundation of everything. Like people say, where does your, the culture come from? I'd like to think a lot of the cultural stuff about how you treat team members is a result of my Christian faith. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm, I believe I'm, you know, told I'm supposed to love my neighbor, and my neighbor is not literally the person who lives next door. It's everybody. It's the people I work with. It's the customers I serve. And so if I'm really living up to that and being obedient to it, I'm going to create a culture that loves your neighbor, and it, and it loves your team members and creates an environment that's healthy for them. And so I feel like that is really the foundation that underlies all these decisions. Awesome. Um, what does that look like for you to pursue your faith? I know you're a member of and active member of a local church. Yep. You're obviously spending time in the Word each morning. Are you in any kind of small group or accountability group or anything with other guys? Yeah, so I've been, I've, I've probably been more haphazard with that than I should be. I have not, like I've got friends of mine who are older than me that have done the same group for 30 years. And it may be like an ADD issue that I just can't keep attention. So I've been in discipleship groups and small groups. Um, I've led some of those with guys who are 
you know, 15 or 20 years younger than me who are earlier in their career. Um, but it's been kind of on and off where I don't, I don't stay with the same group for 10 or 15 years. I just finished, um, literally yesterday morning, there's a group of three other dads that were going through this, um, this concept of fathering, active fathering with your sons specifically. And so we all have 14 year old eighth graders. And so there's five, four dads, five sons, cause there's a set of twins in there. And we're, we just went through a, um, it's a, it's a Christian book that was teaching us some concepts that were pretty eye opening about the way we, we ought to be communicating with our sons and how we should, you know, mentor them to be the, the right type of man and leader. Um, and so that's been helpful. So I tend to do them kind of in, it's more programmatic where I'm doing them in segments and mm-hmm. it's not consistent the same thing over decades but what I hear is you have something plugged into that side of your life to keep f- fueling that side of your yeah yeah your pursuit and right now too because I'm not as young as I used to be at 49 I'm thinking what do I want to do the next 20 years and so there's there's books I'm reading now on on like halftime like what do you do with the next 20 years of your life what are you how are you going to have an impact on the world and so I'm trying to spend time thinking about that more deliberately when you're 25 or 30 you're in a different stage and you're think you're just running and gunning and trying like to survival yeah survival or trying to build a career and now it's like okay now I've got a little bit of time to pause like what do I want the next 20 or 30 years to look like and try to be more deliberate about that yeah so you're like one segment behind Ricky was on a few uh, shows ago and I'm like Ricky you know you're here you are at 67 about to exit and you're kind of like like two-thirds of the way through like or yeah. you've had this successful run and now you're starting over again what would you say to the listeners of the show who are primarily entrepreneurs who are trying to build, you know, a successful life, not just in business and all four domains? What would you be your biggest advice for them? Yeah, it would probably be balance. I mean, I would say the thing that I've failed to do, particularly early, goes back to that example I was using the Randy Zuckerberg tweet, is that it was convicting to hear that I didn't pick all the right things. So, you know, it, the, the challenge, I think, is when you're an entrepreneur, when I look back over my 15 and a half years at Daxco, particularly in the early days when I would pull all-nighters and get stuff done, I'm not sure it would have worked otherwise. Mm-hmm. I don't know because it's hard to do testing to figure out, like, if I'd done it the other way, would it have worked? But I do think there's a lot of danger in getting overly obsessed with your business singularly. I think you become very unhealthy physically and mentally. I think, you know, I've seen families get ripped apart as a result of it. And so I think if you don't, if, if you're not really deliberate about creating a pattern that works for you, like even that morning routine works for me. It allowed me to spend time with my family I otherwise wouldn't have. One of the, like one of the things I do, I traveled a lot the last 15 years. Um, I, and part of this was because I was a CEO and I was able to control the schedule a little bit, but I would take painful day trips. So if I was east of the Mississippi, I rarely spent a night in a hotel. So I would get like literally the 5.15 flight out in the morning and I was coming back on the 9.30 flight that night. I did one of those last week. And so people used to hate traveling with me because it was it's a, it's a painful trip when you leave at 5 in the morning and you're getting home at midnight. But I did that because the next morning I was at home with mm-hmm. my family and I would get to see them. And so um, I think it's just making sure you're really deliberate about those decisions to say, hey, listen, all of this is important. My family, my faith, my fitness, my job, all that's important. And granted, you're never going to compete with the time you spend at work because even if you're in balance, you're going to spend more time working. And that's okay, but it's making sure that you're giving enough time to the other stuff that it doesn't you know, become ignored, I think is the main thing. 
Yeah, and Jim, who was on a few episodes ago, said the same thing. He's actually tracking how many nights away has he gone each quarter, right. and he's taking some of those painful trips you're talking about yeah. just to make sure he's there the next yeah. morning. It's and then having the willingness that if it's not working and you have to be on the road all the time, are you actually willing to quit that job or that opportunity or a really good business venture because you know it's bad for your family or it's bad for you and say, I'm willing to to walk away from all this? And so I think that's the that's the mentality you need to have. If I'm not willing to walk away, you've become, you've gone too far towards an obsession for work and you're chasing material things and your life's out of balance. And so that should be a scary moment if you think how you wouldn't walk away when it becomes dangerous. And it helps you really pursue and establish what do I actually want? I was doing some cult- consulting yesterday with a guy who was asking me about scaling his business. And I said, well, let's start with, look at what you have right now. You have a really good business. You have really good balance. You're at home. He's working from home. I think you could scale. You have a good product, but what is your end goal? Right. You know, you really have to evaluate all that, and if it's going to force you to move in these directions, you really don't want to go. Is it worth it? Right. So, good point. All right. So, final question. I know, probably of anybody I know, Dave, you are the most prolific reader and studying of uh, leadership in general and uh, amongst other topics. And I know, I think you have a website where you actually have like your top I do, suggestions. Yep. I will share that at the end. But what is the number one book that's impacting you right now? Oh, wow. That's impacting me right now, I would say, is probably, um, it's probably the one thing. And closely. Keller? Yeah, with Tim Keller. The, I'm not Tim Keller, Gary Keller. Um, that book and essentialism, the combination of those two was really how do I stay focused on what's most important? And so those books are have been really impactful. Um, I would say those are the top ones right now. Okay. Can you share your uh, site for where you, your top recommendations? Yeah. So if you go to Biso Collective, that's B-I-S-O collective.com, there's a um, link there you can go to this resources. And I have a list of books that are kind of categorized and videos and other things that are resources out there that I think are helpful. Yeah, that's a great site. I've been yeah. there and, and checked it out. All right. Um, how can people follow you now? You can follow me. Um, the best way is probably go to bisocollective.com. My Twitter and um, Facebook links are all there, so you can follow me. And um, I have not been as good about this the last couple of weeks or a few weeks on being on social media, but I try to post stuff, particularly as the company is evolving. But that's probably the best location to find stuff on me. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. Um, have just so much respect for who you are and what you've done, even more so now listening to your story more in depth. And I just appreciate you making time for us. Yeah, this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome, Dave. All right, so uh, this has been Tribecast with Dave and Forrest. See you next week.